Welcome to BrainCore, the podcast that introduces you to new psychology and neuroscience research. I'm Tolu Faramika, and I'm here again with my co-host, Christina Valcanis. Christina, what are we talking about today, and who are we joined by? So today, we are going to continue our discussion from the last episode, Breaking Down Layers of Bias, and we're going to dive into a paper that looks into attempts to reduce prejudice and how some methods may be better than others. The paper we will be discussing today is called Ironic Effects of Anti-Prejudice Messages, How Motivational Interventions Can Reduce But Also Increase Prejudice. With that being said, I would like to welcome Professor of Psychology at the University of Toronto, fellow podcaster and one of the authors of this paper, Michael Inslicht, to the show to discuss his team's findings with us and walk us through the paper. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners really quick? Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me, uh, and thank you for having this podcast. It's, uh, I think it's a great service for all of our students. Um, yeah, so I am uh, Professor Michael Inslicht. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Toronto Scarborough. And uh, you can really think of my research output as spanning two major topics. Uh, for the first part of my career, I was keenly interested in the psychology of prejudice. In fact, for, I think, almost 15 years, I taught a class called the psychology of prejudice. Um, but in the past, the second half of my career, like the, the, the more current half, uh, I study the psychology of self-control and effort and motivation. And in fact, now I teach a class called the psychology of self-control. So yeah, once again, thanks for having me on. No Thank problem. you for coming on. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the episode, actually. Um, my commute to work right now and to school last year always includes listening to um, Two Psychologists, Four Beers, your podcast, and Professor Yuel in bars. Um, I think I mentioned it in the first episode of this podcast, actually. Um, so I'm pumped to get the conversation going. But yes, we are continuing with this month's focus on social psychology slash neuroscience. Um, but I would say this paper borders more on the psychology front. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So there's no, I mean, so I've done, I do a bit of both. I think uh, there's a period of 10, 15 years where I was doing a lot of neuroscience. And uh, this is not one of them. This is a paper that's straight up social psychology. It uses some, some advanced methods, so some reaction time methods, which are interesting ways of um, measuring, you know, aspects of, our minds uh, that we might not be able to see or get at with more conventional self-report uh, methods. But yes, this is straight up uh, social psychology. Okay, so let's get into it. All right. So first of all, this article encompasses not one but two experiments, and they explored prejudice with the goal of finding whether or not it's possible that some prejudice reduction policies and interventions could actually end up increasing prejudice. First of all, what was it that got you interested in this research? Yeah, so this is an interesting uh, paper because at least when we started, this is not what we were expecting. This is not what we, we you know, we were we were looking for. Um, it's not what we, what we hypothesized necessarily. But uh, so I should say maybe the, the the lead author of this is Lisa Legault, uh, who is now a professor of psychology at Clarkson University, and the second author is Jennifer Getzel, 
who is now uh, an associate professor at Brandeis University. These are both uh, former students in my lab. And so they're the lead authors. I'm kind of the, the passenger here. Um, but we, uh, it started really from Lisa Legault's interest in motivational interventions. So examining, you know, not just how you get people motivated, but like the quality of their motivation. So it's not just a case of, you know, are you, are you, you highly motivated or not so motivated, but what is the quality of that motivation? And, and she has been someone who studied something called self-determination theory for a number of years. And uh, when she joined my lab, she brought this interest with her. So she, her main question with this study was, uh, if we uh, create materials, uh, you know, you know, aiming uh, to, you know, to reduce prejudice, um, will, you know, interventions or materials that, uh, you know, kind of foster people's autonomy, um, foster people's sense of, you know, um, feeling like they're in control of their actions, um, if that would uh, help reduce prejudice compared to a control group. And in this case, we used uh, a couple of control groups. One control group was we gave them no information. Um, and in uh, a second control group, what we might think of as an active control group, we tried to get them motivated to be non-prejudiced, but we... Uh, use language that is actually very common in, let's say, uh, anti-racism work that you see today. And I feel, I, I feel this paper is, is especially relevant for, for today, given this, uh, this kind of public awakening uh, towards the problem of, of, of racism in, um, well, all over, uh, in the U.S. especially, but Canada is not exempt. Um, and what we expected to find was that, you know, those... Um, who were autonomously motivated, so can, you know, encouraged to to, to, to to think of diversity positively, encouraged to like think of the benefits to them personally and to society for being egalitarian. We thought that would decrease prejudice, uh, as based on a number of, of ways of measuring prejudice. Um, and then we thought we thought that would work better than you know uh, you know a, a control group where nothing happened, and maybe it would be as effective or possibly be more effective than this other strategy, which again, you know, I mentioned is very common. So, you know, when we published this paper in 2011 on campus at U of T, you'd see often these signs would be stop racism or erase racism. Or today we, we hear about um, the anti-racist movement where to some extent you are admonished, uh, embarrassed, ashamed, you're called out if uh, you show any prejudice. Um, so it's a very common kind of procedure to get people to take egalitarian messages seriously. In any case, so we thought this autonomous message would, would, be, would work better than, than, than doing nothing. Um, uh, and maybe this kind of anti-prejudice message is, uh, would, would somehow fall in between. What we found was very surprising to us. What we found, well, first of all, we, found, we, we did confirm one part of our hypothesis, and that was that um, when people were encouraged to think of the benefits of being egalitarian, they indeed showed uh, a decrease in prejudice responses as assessed with, you know, uh, explicit measures. So that's, you know, people reporting about their attitudes, or even with implicit measures, which are kind of measures that, you know, yeah, they get at people's subtle implicit biases or unconscious biases. And we can talk about, you know, what those measures are in a bit. Um, so we did find that, you know, people who were encouraged to think autonomously about non-prejudice, they, in fact, were less prejudiced compared to people who received no message whatsoever. 
What was surprising to us was that a, a let's say, a muscular message, an anti-prejudice or anti-racist message, actually resulted in an increase in prejudice compared to doing nothing at all. So the kinds of messages we, we see floating around today, again, a muscular, like shaming people for being, you know, having certain kinds of, you know, conceptions of race and, and, and diversity, um, you know, it actually led to an increase. It led people to, to react negatively and to actually show increased prejudice, again, as assessed by a couple of, the, of these uh, uh, measures of prejudice. So what this study to us suggested at the time, and I think it's you know, even more so today, is that we have to be very, very careful in how we structure messages that, you know, we hope will lead to a more inclusive and diverse society. And we can't be careless in, in, in the way we frame our message, because if we don't think carefully, if we're too forceful in our approach to, you know, non-racism non or anti-racism, we might actually fuel uh, a racist backlash. It could actually, you know, paradoxically, not reduce prejudice, it actually increase prejudice. So that was the kind of uh, the bottom line of that study. Very cool. Yeah. So I think that's extremely relevant to what's going on today, seeing as though we have had um, a lot of discussions in the media about racism, and then there's the backlash, and people, there's the riots, and people are. Uh, also resisting Black Lives Matter with the people that say all lives matter, stuff like that. So wording a message could influence the way people react to it. Uh, my question now is, how did you guys get the people into these different mental states? I know it says in the paper that you used priming, but for any of our listeners that may not be familiar with what priming is, do you mind briefly explaining what it is and how it works? Yeah, sure. That, that, that's a really good question. Um, maybe before I answer that question directly, I want to maybe put a big giant caveat or asterisks, uh, you know, to this paper and to many papers. So I've been active um, in a movement called uh, the Open Science Movement, okay. which is all about um, increasing transparency in science to make science as good as it can be. And the reason I'm part of this movement, re the reason there is a movement uh, to begin with that's centered right in social psychology is because it turns out that a lot of our papers um, uh, could not be replicated when attempted. Uh, when people do it, actually try to attempt to replicate our papers, they could not do this. And this paper was published in 2011. And really, people think of this kind of changing norm, the emergence of open science, maybe more like 2014, 2015, something like that. So, this paper, as far as I know, has not been independently independently replicated. And because it hasn't been, I have to express some lack of confidence in the results. You know, until it's independent replicated with you know with, with, with solid measures um, I think we should treat this paper as preliminary as we should always do that with any kind of scientific paper um, and there we might be on you know the results might might in fact be uncertain so I think a lot more research is needed before uh, we you know we draw strong conclusions sure. um, but that yeah but that caveat out of the way uh, let me explain kind of what we actually did um, so uh, we actually had two studies in our first study, 
I, it wasn't actually a priming procedure. It was um, a, a, brochure, a, a brochure procedure. So in this in this condition in this study, uh, th- these are students at U of T Scarborough who came into our lab. These are introduction to psychology students, and they uh, they were told that. Um, uh, they were going to see some information about uh, about some topic, and then afterwards they were going to answer a bunch of questions. So the information they received, it was a brochure. We created a really nice, fancy-looking brochure uh, that looked professional. And in one of the brochures, we described, um, you know, uh, again, this goal of, you know, non-prejudice from a, uh, like I said, a perspective of that, that promotes autonomy. So describing why... You know, diversity is good for them personally. Why it might be good for society? How it increases fairness? You know, how you know a multicultural society benefits all. Um, so really, kind of encouraging people to think of the benefits um, and why they might want to engage in this sort of activity, given its benefits. That was, uh, you know, one condition. The other condition, which is what we call, you know, external control condition, that was a more, let's say, forceful, more aggressive approach to, uh, let's say, non-prejudice. And that said things like, you know, um, you must be non-prejudiced. You know, being being prejudiced is against the law. You could face legal ramifications. Uh, You can get into trouble socially and legally. Um, and it really kind of talked about like how it was it was a duty. They they had to do this. Um, and so you had one which is more of an encouraging sort of approach. One was that was a more forceful approach. And again, these are kind of these slick, glossy brochures. And then you had a third group that didn't receive any information whatsoever. And then afterwards, people completed these measures of, uh, you know, to what extent, uh, what, what, what were their attitudes towards white people and black people? And, and then we kind of, we, we examined, uh, you know, prejudice as, you know, just by looking at the difference between how people, you know, uh, what their attitudes are towards black people and white people. So you know, here our target group is, 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 um, is Black people. In terms of our, by target group, I mean the group uh, about you know uh, the prejudices about a certain group. And this specific group, in this case, was black people. Um, and our second study was a different procedure altogether. It wasn't a brochure study, but it was in fact uh, what you described as a as a priming uh, procedure. And the idea here is, you know, psychologists for a long time have been really kind of wary of. Uh, making telegraphing what the intentions of our manipulations are. So uh, we know from you know decades of experiments that when you know a, a participant understands what we're trying to do, they then act differently. They sometimes try, try to help. They try to help us. They try to cooperate with the experimenter, mm-hmm. and they try to give us the responses that we want. Or sometimes they try to like you know screw up the experimenter and fight against with the experimenter, um, and give them the opposite of what they expect. So it's really important that you know there's not too much of what we call demand demand characteristics. We don't want it to be super obvious what we're trying to get at. So, um, uh, so this primary procedure, you can think of it as a subtle way of manipulating people's approach to, again, uh, being non-prejudiced. So, um, what we did this time is we just had people complete a questionnaire. But the trick is that we gave two versions of the questionnaire. And the questions that people asked, and they kind of placed themselves, you know, asking how much, to what extent they agreed or disagreed with these various statements, the questions themselves framed 
non-prejudice in either autonomy-supporting ways or in like externally controlling ways. So for example, in the autonomy-supporting ways, the autonomy prime condition, people would have to respond to questions like, I enjoy relating to people of different groups. Um, being non-prejudiced is important to me. I value diversity. I can freely decide to be a non-prejudiced person. It's fun to meet people from other races and cultures, etc. Right? So that's kind of a, you see how that you, it's kind of framing non-prejudice as a choice, as something that they willingly might want to do, something that they value. And then the controlling, uh, you know, the externally controlling prime uh, condition had people answer questions like this. It is socially unacceptable to discriminate based on cultural background. People should be, and the key, here, the key word here is should, should be unprejudiced. I would be ashamed of myself if I discriminated against someone because they were black. I should avoid being a racist. I would feel guilty if I were prejudiced. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, reading, reading these statements again, these are all kind of statements that you might see people endorse right now in this, you know, you know, uh, in this moment. Uh, and, and also, they, they don't seem on their face bad, you know, kinds of statements to agree with, right? Um, yet, we found that when people saw that second set of primes compared to that first set of primes, um, you know, they actually showed an increase in, in, you know, kind of negative regard for black people. So, um, just to clarify two things. Um, so, the autonomy condition is using what you would call, like, intrinsic motivation? Correct. And then the controlled condition is using extrinsic motivation. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So, and the difference you know, between the two is that one, you know, feels genuine. One feels like you've chosen it yourself. It's a core part of who you are. Um, so, uh, so you know, maybe we can think of another example just, just, just to, maybe, uh, to, to make it clear. So I could, I could be, you know, exercising because I absolutely adore exercising. I love playing team sports. It gets my competitive juices going, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I could, the highlight of my day to play, you know, these sports. Or I could think of, of exercise as something that, like, my doctor tells me I have to do. And I really hate exercising, but I'm doing it because, you know, my doctor says I have to do this if, you know, I want to be healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. you're, in both cases, you're motivated to exercise, but one feels genuine. One feels like it's a core part of you. It's fun. It's chosen, freely chosen. And one feels like it's forced. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that I wanted to clarify. So uh, you mentioned the caveat. So has a replication actually been attempted or like one hasn't been attempted? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so as far as I know, uh, there has been no attempt to replicate this. Um, now, maybe there are people have replicated it. I'm just not aware of it. Or maybe they tried and failed and it wasn't published. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but as far as I know, this hasn't been replicated. So, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big uh, big caveat, big question mark. So we should really treat this as provisional and preliminary until it's been independently replicated. Mm -hmm. So... Basically, you were saying that with the experiments, both of them, you saw this sort of dichotomous separation um, between the controlled group or the internal intrinsic motivation group. Uh, for me, this was interesting because I thought either way, if you're encouraging someone not to be prejudiced, you'd think they'd make a faster decision to when they were tested with the IAT and basically they'd have less prejudice. But clearly something here was slowing down their judgment and sort of conflicting with their decision. 
why do you think there might have been conflict in the controlled group? Yeah, that's a that's a good good question. Um, you know, the the most honest answer is we don't know, yeah. um, but we have some educated guesses. Um, so there's a long history of work in social psychology on the topic of reactives. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's this notion that people react to being forced to do something. And we all kind of know about this, like in, in, implicitly, even if not explicitly. And, and you can see this in, in action when, you know, people, you know, parents, for example, talk about reverse psychology on their yeah. children. So if you tell your child to do X, they often do not X. They do the opposite of X. They're reacting to their parents trying to control them. And they do the exact opposite of what their parents want them to do. And so then parents will, you know, realize this and and say the opposite of what they want. And sometimes they'll, in the end, get what they want, right? Um, It turns out it's not just kids who who react to to being told what to do. Um, uh, You know, humans, or at least, you know, uh, Westerners, North Americans, where most of this stuff is tested, also react strongly to being told what to do. We have this really, you know, uh, strong sense of freedom. We 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 don't we want to be free, um, and when we're controlled, we rebel against that. And when you're told you must be non-prejudiced, if you do not endorse Black Lives Matter, you are a racist. Well, guess what? There's going to be some group of people, maybe sizable, who is going to push back against that, even if they're not racist, even if they're totally on board with all this stuff. But the fact that you're forcing them, the fact that you're telling them you must do this, otherwise you're not an acceptable member of my group, well, you're going to get people, there's going to be a backlash. There's going to be people pushing pushing back against that. It's actually funny that you bring that up because today after dinner, my sister, she made dinner. So I was supposed to be the one that cleans up and she told me, okay, you can clean up now. And then I was frustrated. I was going to do it anyway, but I said to her, well, you didn't have to tell me to do it. I was going to do it. Like, yeah, (laughs) because you have that desire to be like your individual self and not be told what to do. So I think everyone, that could be the reason we all have this sort of uh, drive for our autonomy and we just want to prove that we're an individual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, I mean, I think it behooves us all to remember that when we're thinking about policy, when we're thinking about, um, you know, you know, uh, creating the, the social change we want to see, like what, what are better ways of bringing that about? And what are like ways that are not just not good, they might actually lead to the opposite of what you want. Um, yeah. Uh, so, we did talk about the IAT in the last episode, um, and I kind of want to press on how rigor- rigorous the IAT's results are and also like narrow in on that caveat. Um, so the claim is that the IAT is measuring implicit prejudice, which is prejudice that is unintended, similar to when we discussed implicit bias last week. Um, and this paper, I think, is pretty good because it's kind of like a wake-up call um, the presenting being less prejudiced as something you want to do to be politically correct or to be socially accepted um, can actually have the opposite effect. It can actually end up increasing prejudice. Um, and I personally think that like interventions that use um, like tell people to do so um, to be socially accepted, I feel like they are disrespectful in a way because it presents having basic respect for another individual 
of another race as a trend. And the thing about trends is that they're constantly changing. Um, and so that respect is dependent on society's values at the time. So when the values or the conversation changes, nothing has been internalized and nothing changes. Um, but yeah, so I want to hammer down on the IAT because uh, there are domino effects. Um, so the creators of the IAT came out in 2015, I believe. Um, no, no, not 2015. It was, uh, it was, no, it was 2000. I don't know. No, it might have been, it was 1998. The first ever IIT paper was 1998. Yeah. It came yeah. out in 1998. But I mean, like, they came out with a statement in 2015 um, that basically said that the test can't tell individuals how likely they are to commit acts of implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say, like, that changes the interpretation of the results of the paper? Like, I know it came out way before the statement came out. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you already had a, an episode on the IAT. So, uh, I mean, the IAT is, uh, well, it deserves a whole episode um, because it's, 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 a, it's a, a controversial now measure. Um, and I think the creators of, of, of the measure, you know, uh, were made statements in the media far before they had, and, you know, the science was, 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 was settled. Um, mm-hmm. And now there are strong doubts about what's in fact being measured by the IAT. Um, it seems to, um, you know, there seems to be some, you know, some interesting findings that are very robust and very replicable and that seem very disturbing on their face. So, for example, um, uh, on average, white people have a... Uh, an anti-black bias as reflected by the IAT. It also turns out that a, a good number of black people have an anti-black bias on the IAT. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a, as a teaching tool, it might be interesting to the extent that it's actually valid. But, but there are just, yeah, there are lots of issues with the IAT. Um, you know, one could be that, you know, is it, is it a reliable measure? So what, is, what do I mean by reliable measure? Um, so, uh, any measurement needs to be reliable for it to be make have you know make predictions. So, for example, your scale, your your bathroom scale, um, it uh, it would be a very bad measure of your weight if every time you went on you had wildly different weights, right? Okay, sure, you're going to see like some plus or minus, you know, two or three pounds maybe, you know, on a non-exact scale like your bathroom scale, but it's more or less you know gets it you know within that, you know, uh, error rate. But what if the scale itself, you know, one day it told you you were 100 pounds, another day it told you you were 150 pounds, another day you told you you were 75 pounds. You'd be like, what do I actually weigh? Mm-hmm. And that kind of problem actually that exists for the IAT. Um, you know, you, people score different th- differently uh, and they rank order differently compared to their peers, you know, from, you know, one test to another. So it's hard to know what, it's, what exactly it's getting at. So I'm criticizing the IT and there's like, I could, I can go on and on. Um, <laughs> I'm criticizing the IT, but I'm also, uh, you know, uh, you know, in indirectly then criticizing uh, my paper here because we did use the IT as one of our dependent variables uh, in our second study. So the question might be, well, what, you know, what does it actually mean? What, you know, what does it mean that one group had more bias as reflected in the IT than another group if it's not a valid measure? Um, that's a good question. It might not mean much. It might not, it might not reflect something real. Um, now, uh, we do have two studies. Uh, 
And the other study is a self-report measure of bias. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of problems with self-report measures. So if I asked, if I gave you a scale asking you, you know, uh, what is your attitude uh, on a, you know, from, from zero to a hundred, you know, how do you feel about black people? Uh, well, you know, especially in today, today you'd be like, well, I know I could be like, you know, you know, redneck KKK, you know, racist. And I still know that I, you know, the right answer is probably closer to a hundred than zero. Yeah. Um, so, and because I don't want people to think that I'm an awful person, then I probably would answer closer to a hundred than zero. Right, so there are problems with self-report too, uh, but nonetheless, it's it's hard to get inside people's heads. It's hard to know what what people feel without either asking them or getting at their behaviors indirectly. So, in one study, we asked them, and the other study, we we looked at you know their uh, you know uh, attitudes indirectly, you know through this uh, the IAT. But again, you know, I think you're right. I think there are problems with the IAT. There are problems with self-report. So. Um, this is why science is always evolving and needs to, you know, uh, replications need to happen and, and, and paying attention to measurement, you know, that kind of stuff needs to happen. And I'm not sure we did as, as well of a job on, let's say, measurement in this study as, as we could have now that, you know, I think we know a lot more about methods um, in 2020 than we did in uh, 2011. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the discourse that we advocate for, um, is that it leads to improvements on different measures. Um, I think for students wanting to enter the field of research or clinical psychology or any other field where they will be consumers of psychology, um, I think critical thinking comes into play, um, especially when the research is conducted and it has domino effects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, I mean, that's something I always try to teach, uh, teach my students is, you know, I actually don't care if my students in my undergraduate classes, you know, remember most of the content. I mean, I, you know, I was, at, I also, I too was an undergraduate student and, you know, I don't remember a lot of the, a lot of what I learned, but what, one, <laughs> one, one thing that I did learn and, and take away, and I hope my students take away is, you know, the ability to learn to think critically, the, the ability to, to see a claim in a newspaper or a magazine or even a scientific journal and be skeptical of it. And, 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 and that's good. Being skeptical is good. Um, you want to ask questions. You want to push. You want to, like, don't accept things just because a fancy professor says so, or don't don't accept it as truth just because it's in a it's in a newspaper or in a in a very well known scientific journal. Uh, mistakes happen. Um, there's bad. You know, there, there's you know, uh, science is always is constantly evolving and self correcting. Uh, you know, no one paper is the final word. So yeah, I hope I hope uh, your listeners uh, take that to heart. Mm-hmm. Um, in the most recent episode of Two Psychologists, Four Beers, I believe you had on Simin Vizier and Rob Willer and um, had a l- little debate happen. Um, and at the end of the episode, I- I'm not going to lie, I did feel a little dejected because I felt like, is the field I want to go to, like psychology, is it producing good and accurate results? Um, but I wanted to ask, like, did, did it feel that way at all um, at the end of that episode? Uh well, that's a good question. So, well, first, if, if, if you're feeling that way, uh, you're not alone. Um, I think a lot of us in the field uh, have been feeling this way about psychology and about science, social science maybe specifically, for like almost 10 years now. Um, so for me, you know, and I guess you're speaking specifically to what Samin Vizier was saying, mm-hmm. um, where she's, you know, like I, I called her a nihilist. Um, <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard to, to think about, you know, that a lot of the work uh, you are inspired by a lot of the work that, you know, you get excites you might not be great. Right now, I, I will say that, and, and I include my own work in this. So I've like had a, you know, uh, a, a coming, a come to Jesus, uh, moment, which is very <laughs> remarkable for a Jew to come to Jesus. But, uh, uh, yeah, where, you know, I, at some point I just, I realized that I was part of the problem that I, I was contributing, uh, to bad science and because I, I didn't, I didn't recognize that, you know, at first I didn't see that, I didn't know that, but then there's a series of papers that were published in, in like 2011, 2012, 2013 that kind of opened my eyes. And then I couldn't see anything else the same anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see science, I couldn't see psychology the same anymore. But on the flip side of the, of the pessimism and the nihilism is the, the true excitement of being able to contribute to a field that is trying to do things right, that is, um, you know, is more keenly aware of its problems. And, and I think psychology, I, w- I would argue, is the best place to be in, in all of the social sciences um, because we are, we have been talking about this and thinking about this and changing as a result of these conversations much more so than any other field. And maybe you could say that psychology had a bigger problem than, than some other fields. I think that might be true. But it's not as if other fields uh, were problem-free. Um, economics, sociology, uh, political science, uh, medicine, like medicine, right? The, the stuff that, that your doctors learn um, mm-hmm. who are trying to save you. That, too, there's a lot of research out there that's not replicable. Um, so, yes, it, it's kind of scary and, and, and pes- you know, it's kind of uh, deflating to hear that, you know, maybe psychology is not, can't offer a lot today, let's say specifically in, in this case in the helping out in the pandemic, the response to the pandemic. Yeah. But we're grappling with this. Right, we're, we're talking about it, and we're thinking about it, and as a result, I'm hoping that the psychology that you will do, right, that your you know, your classmates will do, mm-hmm. will be a better quality uh, than what I did, um, such that you know, you know, when you're, you know, when you have your podcast in ten years and you have a debate, it'll be well, look, maybe we've had, we have a messy past, but look at all this good work that we've done, and like we have, you know, better answers. Um, to, to, to the world's pressing questions than we did, you know, you know, 10 or 20 years previous. So I think it's exciting, even, even if it's a bit scary. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's definitely exciting. Um, I did feel that way. Um, but while scripting this episode, uh, the view actually changed for me, like my whole perspective changed because, um, I feel like Simmons view kind of ignited a passion to have good, accurate science and, it just overall left me feeling, um, like you say, excited for the future of psychology research. Um, but yeah, that was just a side note for me about that episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, maybe one thing I can give a little plug. Uh, if, if, if you or any of your listeners are interested in, um, you know, the, the, the science behind the science, you know, trying to make psychology better or, or science better in general, there, there's this, you know, at least in psychology, there's, this, there's a, the, a scientific society called the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science that is full of young people, full of, you know, graduate students, uh, you know, young faculty, undergraduates as well, who are just like, you know, idealistic 
and want to make science good, you know, uh, make it great again, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, and there's a place for you. There's a place for, for you know, for optimists who, who want science to be the best it can be. And again, mm-hmm. science is always going to make mistakes. It's, it, it's, it's, it's the only the epistemology process. that allows for mistakes and corrects it, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's the beauty of science. Uh, it's, it's, it, it shouldn't suffer from too much hubris. Um, because mistakes happen and new information comes to light and we need to, to revise things. So, but you can be part of that if you join the society. So yeah, plug to that uh, society for the improvement of psychological science. Okay. I'm guessing they have like a website. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that would be offhand, but if you look up, uh, yeah, SIPS, S-I-P-S, mm-hmm. uh, you'll find it. Okay. I might put that in the bio for this episode. Then. Yeah. Society. <laughs> Are you looking it up? Yeah, I, looked <laughs> I didn't find it yet, but I found yeah, it. I'll find a it. A coffee house called Sips. Well, maybe, maybe spell it all out. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Society for the Improvement of Psychological Research. Either way, I think that's the thing with science is people maybe focus too much on studies as answers and being a concrete answer for something but at the end of the day you can't treat one study as like the holy grail and like this is these are your results this is the answer you have to I'll never forget one of my profs said I don't give you guys answers I teach you to ask better questions yeah that's great um yeah so uh yeah you know science is cumulative all we're doing is building bricks maybe some people might say we're not even building bricks we're just like building grains of sand that become bricks <laughs> that then become homes um yeah. or you know structures of some kind um and it's you know we're we're, we're hopefully building on our the people who came before us uh and but the only way it can be cumulative is if, if the science is good so yeah i found the website it's called it's improving psych.org is the uh the website ah okay Lovely. yeah in last episode too we talked about that with dr garang how you have to take science with a grain of salt. But like how that doesn't mean that we ignore science, but, but that we we think, think critically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, like I said, with you know, in terms of it in epistemology, it's, it's you know, to, I think Winston Churchill said they had this famous quote about uh, democracy. He said, democracy is the worst form of government, um, <laughs> except it's better than everything else that we have. Um, and you could say, you know, science is, you know, is, is a terrible way of knowing things, except it's the best way we have of knowing things, right? Yeah. It, it beats, uh, uh, you know, astrology. Um, it beats, uh, you know, religion as a way of knowing, uh, of understanding the world. Um, it beats, you know, authority figures as saying, this is what I believe and therefore it is. Um, but it makes mistakes. Yeah. Just like everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a great discussion. If you have any main takeaways from the paper for the listeners that you want to share before we wrap it up, what do you think they would be? Yeah, I mean, so I think I've, I've said them already, but like I, I can, I think it bears repeating. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, with what is happening today in, in the wake of the, the murder of George Floyd and 
the end of May 2020, the you know protests all over the U.S. I think justified protests and, and demands for improvement uh, in race relations in the U.S. and all over the world. And I totally, uh, you know, am, am down with that cause. I think that's it's really important. And like I said, I taught a class on on the psychology of prejudice for 15 years. It's something I care about deeply. But I'm concerned that, you know, activists in their zeal to bring people on their side are going to turn people away. And they're going to actually create racists. They're going to create the very thing they're fighting against. Um, and I think we have to think carefully about this stuff. We have to think carefully about how do we achieve the, the goals that we want to achieve, um, you know, with the best way possible. Um, how do we get as many people on board um, to, 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 to get the, you know, the results that we want? And I think forcing people, shaming people, um, you know, uh, is, is just not, it's not a healthy way of getting people on board with any cause, be that, you know, anti-racism, uh, be that, you know, uh, you know, diets, exercise, what have you. Um, I think we have to think about like, how do we get people on board? And I, I think the way you get people on board is you try to encourage them to identify with the cause, to see themselves in the cause, to see how they and the people they love, and in their societies will benefit, but it's not by shaming people. It's not by guilting them. It's not by um, making people feel coerced. And I am worried that that's that, that that could be happening now. Yeah. Well, hopefully, people listen to our conversation and they take something good away from this podcast. I want to thank you again for coming and discussing that with us. It was really interesting and. I think very relevant to what's going on today for all mm -hmm. our listeners. Thank you as well. And if you liked hearing from Michael, be sure to check out his and Yoel in bars podcast as well to psychologists for beers. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And, and, and thank you for doing this. This is a great service uh, to um, all the undergrads out there and especially to the U of T undergrads. So uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I guess now it's time for a little email prompt. Um, you can let us know how you felt about this episode by emailing us. It's thebraincorepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Instagram or Twitter. Um, that's always in the bio. You can also rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts because it is now available there. And um, leaving comments can also help to build our audience. Uh, the link for the paper that we just discussed will be in the bio as well, um, a, a, along with that society website. Um, so, yes, thank you again for listening, and we hope you are having a great brain day. Mm -hmm.